This morning we're going to continue our study from Genesis in God's grace from the beginning. And this is our third week. In the first week we saw that we were created for worship and the freedom and the liberation that there is in that as creatures worshiping our creator. In the second week we looked at how we were created for stewardship, that our God is a God who gives dignity to all work and that there's a, there's a great uh, glory in all work in the sense that uh, we have rest from putting our identity in our work because all of our identity is actually located in Christ's work. And that really transforms our day-to-day reality uh, for us. So we've seen we're created for worship and created for stewardship. And this morning we're going to go to Genesis 2 and we're going to see how we were created for relationship. And as I was studying and preparing this and going over this text over and over, I kept thinking about the film La La Land, which is a fan- this fantastic musical, so creative, Emma Stone, Ryan Gosling, they'd knock it out of the park if you haven't seen this thing. I'm going to spoil it, by the way, so I may need to run out of the service as I explain this, but uh, it was just, it was genius. The, 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 the music was incredible, and the storyline was really intriguing, and it was a really interesting commentary on this, these two artists who were trying to make their way in L.A. He wants to make it as a musician. She wants to make it as an actress. And there's all the challenges that come along with that in terms of them having to make super hard decisions about their relationship as a result. You know, I'm pursuing my dream, and now sacrifice is required, and, and what am I going to do? And what they did with the story, what I found really interesting, was they didn't tie it up in a nice, neat bow. Um, in fact, what they did was they kind of ended the story saying, well, this is kind of how life works out. Sometimes you don't end up together. And in telling that, they actually took a moment to do a bit of a Disney, quote-unquote, ending to like, well, this is how you would all want it to turn out. This is how we all expect it to turn out. And this is how all fairy tales do turn out. But this isn't how the story turns out. And it was brilliant. I mean, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone have this great chemistry, and he learned to play the piano, and he learned to tap dance, and it's super annoying, because he's already, you know, this brilliant actor, and he's really good looking, and it's just not fair uh, that one person should have all that talent in one body, so Ryan Gosling is horrible, but uh, what I found, the reason why I kept going back to it is because we refer to it as a romantic comedy, but from a classical literary point of view, it's actually a tragedy, because in a in a historic classical sense, when the main characters end up in great sorrow, it's tragic. That's the genre. Now the film has a lot of funny moments in it, so in that sense, it's comedic. But their actual relationship is tragic. But in the end, they see each other. They're not together. She's moved on. She's successful. He's moved on. He's successful. She has a family. She's married. She has a child. And when they meet up in this club that he always dreamed of having at the end of the film, and he's there, and they see each other, she, ha- she is in sorrow for the loss of the love. And he is in sorrow for the loss of the love. And the reason why my mind kept coming back is because in Genesis chapter 2, the text I'm about to read this morning, God looked down and he saw that man had paradise without relationship and God said that's not good. North Americans will sacrifice relationship for paradise and call it good. And I I just couldn't escape that thought. So anyways, I know that the writers of La La Land were trying to be deeply theological so I'm not chagrinning the film. It's it's a brilliant commentary uh, on the human human soul and on the human condition in many ways. And so this morning I'm going to read Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 and then I'm going to read Genesis 2, 18 to 25. 
Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the breath of life. And man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to all the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. This is God's word. This morning, as a Father's Day gift, I'm not going to be preaching about being a father. Instead, I'm going to be pointing to the ultimate Heavenly Father, the ultimate loving Father, who uh, ministers great rest and peace to all of our souls and all of our hearts. This morning, we're going to look at this text in three ways. So here's today's sermon and a statement. It's that God designed us for relationships of self-giving love. Sin distorts relationships with self-serving interest. And the gospel reshapes how we relate through Christ's self-giving sacrifice. Self-giving love, self-serving interest, and Christ's self-giving sacrifice. This is what we want to look at this morning. There's a lot to be learned when we look at the Bible before sin entered the picture. So we're going to get to the gospel, the goodness of God, the grace of Christ at at the end of this sermon. But before we get there to see what it is he is restoring, we have to have a good understanding of what God created in the first place, and we have to have a good understanding of what we lost. Otherwise, the good news isn't much good, good news unless we see it against the backdrop of what we lost. The gospel is like a diamond on a black cloth. But without the black cloth, you can't really fully appreciate the beauty of that diamond. And so we go to this text in Genesis 2 before sin even entered the picture. We see what God designed us for. So firstly, God designed us for relationships of self-giving love. You see there in verse 26 and 27, he says, let us... Make man in our image. And he refers to himself in the plural. The Trinity, the Christian God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Trinitarian view of God is the only view in all religions in the entire world that put love at the core, that put love at the essence of who God is. No other religion can do that because love requires an object. And without an object for that outward expression of self-giving love, there can be no love. So the Christian view of God makes love primary. Every other religious view of God makes love 
Secondary. It has to be secondary. Love had to have come in after creation so that there was something for the gods to love. But in the Christian view, love was before creation. Love propelled creation, which is why love is intrinsic to creation, right? And how we flourish as those who are products of the creation, right? So this is important for us to understand. We were created for self-giving love because God in and of himself from all eternity is a community, and it's on that basis that we say God is love. And it's on that basis that we say that, that what's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? It's to love. Why can we say that? Because we were created from that, created of it, and to propel it. I had a discussion with a Jehovah's Witness on this many times. He'd come to my house every summer. Maybe I'll see him again this summer. I hope I do. Uh, he, and he, he comes each summer, and we have these discussions. And he was Because if you don't know, the Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that Jesus Christ is God. They believe that Jesus Christ was created by God. Right? So that's important to understand. So what, what he was telling me was, well, um, you know, uh, you have a Trinitarian view as a Christian, and that's not true. That, you know, you guys made that up. And so I went to the text, and I said, well, the word Trinity isn't anywhere in the Bible, but the, but, but, but the reality of the Trinity is everywhere in the Bible. And I took him here. And I said to him, I said, listen, you're telling me that Jesus was the creation of God, which means that you don't have a God of grace. He said, yes, I do. I said, no, you don't. I said, you're telling me that Jesus went to the cross and died for my sin. He goes, yeah. I said, but you don't believe that Jesus was God. He goes, no. I said, so what you're telling me is your God created another being, being to deal with my sin problem? That's not gracious. That's horrible. That's terrifying. That's a nightmare. In the Christian view, God doesn't send somebody else to deal with our sin problem. Jesus is God. God comes himself. And gives of himself in self-giving love to deal with our sin problem. That's the gospel. If, if Jesus is not God, you've lost the Trinity, you've lost the gospel, you've lost orthodoxy. Right? So, so it's important for us to understand that we were created for self-giving love because that's the image we were created in. Let us make man. And this creation was not a cold, impersonal process. When God says, let us make man in our image, and he goes to the ground and he forms man. Right? Uh, it gives you this visual image of him forming man. It's, uh, the, uh, the word goes to the ground and forms. It's like a potter forming clay. Right? So here you've got the God of the universe with dirt under his fingernails, lovingly forming and creating us. Right? This loving Father creating us. And what does that, what does that uh, image uh, uh, provoke for us? It provokes that uh, the process of God creating us, it was a communal celebration. I'll, 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 I'll tell you why I say it that way. In Proverbs chapter 8, Proverbs describes wisdom, wisdom being there at creation. And if you read Proverbs 8, wisdom is a she in Proverbs 8, to, and, and wisdom, she says, this is what she says uh, in, in Proverbs chapter 8, 22 to 31, I was beside him like a master workman. I was daily his delight. And as you read through all of Proverbs 8, before there were mountains, before there were oceans, before, 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 I was there with him as his delight. So the process of creation has wisdom there as his delight. And the Hebrew word for delight is to dance. Why would, why would in the Hebrew the picture of creation and wisdom be a dance? Well, because God is a community. You've got God the Father, the Son, the Spirit, loving one another, in relationship to one another, delighting from all of eternity, and now they're creating. So the, the image you should have in your mind uh, isn't a scientist at a chalkboard with a long white beard creating the universe. It's a celebration of love and of life, and it's a dance. 
And this is why we were created for the self-giving love, because God said, let's expand the circle of community, let's expand the circle of love, and let's, in, let's create beings who can come in and enjoy this dance, who can come in and enjoy this celebration. See, Christian faith is a celebration. Sunday morning is a celebration. But how many of us grew up thinking about Christian faith that way? Guys, it's Sunday is coming. We've got to get to church. We've got to rest. We've got to celebrate. We've got to be like, wow, God is good. Our Father is good. The Creator is good. We know life is horrible, but we are in the Father's hand. We know that the world is at unrest, but Jesus Christ and His perfect sacrifice gives us rest. It's a celebration. Your body can be breaking down, you can be sick and full of disease, but you come to church and go, yeah, I'm going to rest. This is all temporal. God's restoring everything. We never, many of us didn't think about Christian faith as rest, as celebration, as a dance. Many of us thought, okay, Christian faith means live your life with your fingers crossed. You better make sure that you're you know, being righteous. You better make sure that you're living right, because if you're not, we don't know. We want to be hashtag blessed, but we might not be hashtag blessed if we don't do the things to get hashtag blessed. So these are the things we got to do to get hashtag blessed. I mean, we have, we have taken it from being the dance of being created in love for a life of love, of liberation, of flourishing, of loving one another and self-giving love right here, and then being able to be that blessing in the city, and we've turned it into the scientific kind of a scenario. We say, okay, and so we have to remember that in the beginning, this is what God did. So the potter goes and he creates us from the clay. And so all of us, our skin is different earth tones, which interestingly should be a source of humility. But historically speaking, what have we done? We've taken our earth tones and made them a source of pride. It's ironic, isn't it? I mean, we should have a source of pride, but not in the color of the earth tone, in the breath that was breathed into all of us. So that regardless of your earth tone, Regardless of the color of your skin, all of us are giving one another dignity on the basis of the breath of life of God that's inside of all of us. Which is why everybody in this city, regardless of whether their faith is in God, regardless of whether they trust in Christ, deserve to be treated with love and dignity, not regardless of the color of the earth tone, because they have in them the breath of God. And this is the liberating life of love that God designed in the beginning. You say, Paul, this sounds really great, but this isn't the world we live in. I know. Paul, you're being utopian. No, I'm not. This is what God created. This is what God is restoring. We are now in between the already and not yet of Christ's work, being restored, being renewed, and being invited back into a dance, being swept back up into this big picture of celebration to the glory of God and for the glory of God. And so in verse... In chapter 2 and verse 18, we find that for the first time in all of creation, God looks down and he finds something that's not good. So it's not good that man should be alone. But I want us to think about this deeply and broadly, beyond just marriage here. And we need to, and I'm not going to minimize marriage, I'm going to get to that, but we need to understand that what the Bible is not saying is it's not good to be single. That's a wrong reading of this text. I'll t I tell you, there's nothing worse for single people in the church than to be treated like they have some sort of a sickness that needs to be cured. There's nothing more annoying for single people in the church to feel like, oh, you're single? Oh my goodness, well, we should all pray for you. Somehow this condition... No. Christian faith is the, is the only worldview that at, at, at that point uh, when Genesis was being written, there was no other worldview that, that gave dignity uh, to singleness. Whereas in the Christian faith, you find it in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, you find it in Ephesians 5, 
where dignity is given to singleness. Jesus was single. Paul was single. There's a dignity in singleness. What Paul is, what, what Moses is writing about here when God gives him the revelation to say, it's not good for man to be alone. Is he not saying you can't be satisfied unless you get married? No. What he's saying is none of us were created to live, with, live a self-serving life. You can't flourish unless you're living your life in a, in a self-giving love. None of us were created for an inward posture. None of us were created for a me first, my happiness is on the throne kind of a life. All of us were created for an outward giving posture. I'll explain uh, why this is so important. It teaches us something very critical about how we were created to fr- thrive. Think of this. Adam had everything. He had food, he had beauty, he had power, he had nature. He, Adam also had uninterrupted union with God. And God still said that wasn't good. No sin. Uninterrupted union with the Creator. And God looks down and goes, this isn't good. Why would he do that? Because Adam was created in the image of God, but he couldn't express the image of God because he had no one to give to. And God is a giver. So this is beyond romance and marriage. This is about relationship and community. You see, you can be a single person and you can be totally fulfilled. You can, be, you can have your, uh, your heart and your, your, your identity located in God, the Creator, and you can, your soul can be at rest, and you can live a single life and be very fulfilled and live outward and loving others. You can also be single, put yourself on the throne of your heart, live inward, make yourself king, and be miserable. You can also be married, you understand? It doesn't matter whether you're single or married. It's about that posture of God looking down and saying, if you can't give, it's not good. So I've got to bring to Adam someone so that he can reflect me. Because from all of eternity, I've been loving and giving. He needs to do that to express the image with which he was created. So he creates Eve, and the word for the woman is the ezer in the Hebrew, ezer. And I want to give you a quick Hebrew lesson, not because Hebrew is that interesting to you, but because the English version, and, and historically speaking, what we have done with this text on the woman has been not good in the church, okay? So the word Ezer, in the English, it says helper. But as North Americans, if we say, I'm bringing you a helper, we're like, this is like some sort of a subordinate person who, you know, runs around behind you and holds stuff. You know, you're really the one, you're really the grand poobah in charge. The helper just kind of follows you around and helps. You know, we read this as North Americans and go, well, Adam was, you know, God's creation and he was the man and he was first and this woman is somehow subordinate to him and, you know, he's got a lot of gardening to do so he's like, honey, can you bring me a rake? Okay, like that's how North Americans read this word. But in the Hebrew, <laughs> yeah. but in the Hebrew, it means the helper is the one who brings uh, vital Crucial, powerful strength. So God says, I need to bring him someone who has vital, crucial, powerful strength. Her contribution is critical. That's what the word helper means. Ezer is used 21 times in the Old Testament, and 16 times God refers to himself as the Ezer. So that's got to frame how we see this. So... Historically, when we say, well, we're a compliment, you know, the church is complementarian, what that should mean 
is that man and woman are equal before God in their dignity and their value and their, and their uh, worth, but they are unique in the sense that the woman is bringing to the family, to the relationship, to the church, to the city, vital, critical, powerful help that, by definition, we as men do not have. And, that for, and, and conversely, the, uh, the opposite is true. That the man is bringing to the church, to the family, to the relationship, to the city, vital, crucial, powerful help and contribution that, by definition, the woman doesn't have. God did not bring Adam someone who was like him. God intentionally brought someone to Adam who was not like him. All of us, we learn, not just in, in terms of our marriages, but in relationship, that we're supposed to, the original design was self-giving love to people who aren't like us. But what's the most comfortable thing for me to do? Surround myself with people who are like me. Surround myself with people who are into what I'm into. You know, and if the people who aren't, it's kind of like, you know, sucks to be you, because this is the zone I'm about, and you don't fit into that. So there cannot really, I can't really give love to you, because you're really not like me. So God creates us for this relationship of self-giving love. Now, for Christians, the scriptures are authoritative for our faith and practice. So I would be amiss if I didn't speak very specific, uh, specifically to uh, God's design here. So I'm going to take a minute to do this very briefly. Uh, as I do it, I want to encourage us in something, and it's this. It's that God does not bow to our ideas. We bend our knee to God's wisdom. And so this text depicts God's wisdom and design for ultimate human flourishing. This text, it guides our sexual ethics. It guides our understanding of marriage. guides our understandings of gender. And as we've seen, the God of creation is both loving and giving. So what he designed in the beginning was a picture of fulfillment. The scriptures explicitly teach us that any sexual practice that is outside the covenant of marriage, of one man and one woman, uh, is disordered. It's outside God's original order. It's sin. And there are three mistakes that we as a church have made historically in this. Three mistakes we've made that I want to encourage us to acknowledge and turn from so that we don't repeat. Here's the first mistake we've made. The first mistake we've made is that the church has not shown love, dignity toward uh, those who are outside the church who don't share the sexual ethic, who have a different sexual orientation, or they have different ideas, or uh, they have gender dysphoria. Everyone is an image bearer of God, and so as such, they deserve love and dignity, regardless of the fact that they don't share our beliefs. That's the first mistake the church has made. The second mistake the church has made is that under the pressure of the culture to embrace a fluid, evolving sexual ethic, the church has rejected God's word as the authority that defines us and our sexual ethic, and instead the church has capitulated to the culture and wrongly decided that we are the ones who get to redefine ourselves and redefine our sexual ethic. That's the second mistake the church has made. And the third mistake that the church has made is that we have not extended grace to Christians who have true faith in Christ, who desire the lordship of Christ, and they struggle with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria. 
Psalm 139 teaches us that humanity was created in an amazing way. And so our God-given identity from creation should not be reduced to our impulses. We don't reduce our identity to our emotional impulses or our physical impulses or our sexual impulses. We are, as a human race, far greater than our impulses. Scripture does not teach that certain people have disordered sinful impulses. The Scripture teaches that all of us, church, all of us have disordered sinful impulses in one way or another. So we all rely on God's grace to reorder our hearts, and we must extend God's grace and trust that as he is reordering our neighbor's hearts, for those of us who are in the church in this way. So what's the way forward in all of this? What do the scriptures teach us? What do they give us? The way forward is not for the church to abandon our beliefs. The way forward is for us to continually give dignity and love to those who don't share our beliefs. Without specific beliefs, no community can exist. Because having shared common belief is why all communities exist. And so we want to extend love to everyone who is outside this community, who disagrees with the guidance of God's word, And we want to extend love to everyone who is inside the church community with an understanding that we are all struggling in our own way to be guided by God's word. So God's design originally was for our relationships of self-giving love. Let's move on and talk for a minute about how sin distorts our relationships with self-serving interests. So we've talked about how Adam had everything and he had paradise, but God said it wasn't good because he didn't have a community. But, you know, sin distorts our view of community and the value of, that we have of community. You know, if I was to fill the Rogers Center with, with 50,000 Christians, and if I was to say, man will let you down, but God will never let you down, they'd shout, yeah, amen. And if I said, people fail you, but God will never fail you, they would say, yeah, amen. And if I said, people will turn and they will leave you, but God will never leave you, then the, the, all the thousands of Christians would say, yeah, amen. And if I said, So you don't need people. If you've got God, he's all you need. You know, still thousands would say, yeah, amen. But we'd be dead wrong. Because in the the beginning, Adam had God. But he didn't have people. And God didn't call that good. Sin distorts the way we see community. Because we've all been hurt. Everybody has a church horror story. I don't think I've met anybody who's like, you know, all my experiences of church is just people are basically mini Jesuses. I mean, they're just all so gracious and loving and understanding. Like, nobody has a story about the church like that. Which is why if you're here at Redeemer and you're new, you know, you've been a Redeemer for two weeks. Oh, this is such a great church. Give it time. <laughs> just give us time. One of us, all of us will let you down. Don't worry. Give me time. Oh, I've been to Redeemer for two whole Sundays, and Paul Dunk is just the bestest, bestest, bestest. Just give me time. That's all. All I need is time. And you'll drive home like, nope. (laughs) But what sin does is it distorts our need. So what what historically do we as Christians do when when others hurt us and let us down? We say, that's it, I don't need you. Right? We do that, we do that relationally in marriages, we do that in businesses, right? We will we will sacrifice relationship for paradise. This is the this is the personal paradise I want. So I'll sacrifice relationships to get that. We do it corporately, we do it relationally, we do it romantically, right? We do it ecclesiologically, which is a big fancy theological word for the church. Our, we get our ecclesiology wrong, we do that, right? 
sin distorts why, why we need the value. They say, no way, no, no, I've, I'm done with, you know, I'm, I, in a sense I'm preaching to the choir because you're all here this morning. But we've all been hurt. We, so I want us to have empathy for our friends and our family and those in the city who are these homeless Christians who are kind of like, you know what? The community thing is a bad deal, man. I'm going to be an individual spiritualist. Okay, I'm going to stay home. Right, I'm going to listen to J.I. Packer and, and, and uh, you know, or wherever. I'm going to listen to Tim Keller or I'm going to listen to, you know, all these, these, brilliant, these brilliant guys, Matt Chandler and Jared Wilson, these brilliant preachers. They're way better than Paul Dunk anyway. I don't need to deal with the drama of church. I'm going to stay home. I'm going to get some good preaching. I'm going to listen to my favorite, you know, you know, music. It's way better than what we can do anyways. And I'm good. Me and God are good. But Genesis 2 goes, no, you're not. It's not good. Because you're building an idolatrous wall around your heart that says, me first. That's never going to end well. The reason why Christian faith has always been a communal faith is because the God of the Christian faith is a communal God. This offends us, doesn't it? Especially when we get hurt. Especially when the church, you know, frustrates us and bothers us. We're like, you know, screw you guys. I'm staying home. Right? That's what we want to do. That's where we go all the time. Of course we do. Because sin distorts this self-giving love and it replaces it with this self-serving interest. And so coming in a church community is very risky. For those of you who are, you know, looking for church homes, I respect how difficult that is. It's so hard. You you, You come into Redeemer and you're like, I don't know. Will we be here? Will we not be here? It's hard. Committing to community is hard. Being individual, individualistic is easy. Because our, you know, there's things about being individualistic that are good, okay? So, for example, we can affirm some things. Our culture is individualistic, and that's allowed us to have human rights and the idea that every dignity, every race, every class, creed, everybody deserves, you know, basic human rights. So individuality and individualism is good in that respect. But where it fails us, or I think we have to challenge it, is when individualism comes into our uh, our, our theology, and we get the idea that unless somebody has a value add, I'm not sticking around. Right? How many of us have, have gone into churches, or this one, you know, and you kind of look around the room and you're kind of like, mm, nope, I'm out of here. Right? I don't see any ROI, I'm gone. I've done it. I do it all the time. Because the, because the sinful inclination of my heart keeps wanting to go back to self-protect. Right? Many of us can understand that. So we were designed for uh, relationships of self-giving love, but then sin distorts it with a self-serving interest. But living an outward-facing life in self-serving love, that fulfills our souls. Living an inward-facing self, you know, life of self-interest, it shrivels our souls. And so let's move on to the final thing. The gospel, it reshapes how we relate through Christ's self-giving sacrifice. So let's look at Jesus here. Let's, talk, let's see the goodness of Jesus, his grace, what he has done for us, and how that, how that reshapes us here. In verse 23, when Adam is given his bride, he cries out, At last! Remember that? At last! Finally, someone I can relate with, someone I can give myself to. He says, At last! And it's interesting to note that when God says it isn't good, he doesn't give him Eve right away, he gives him a job first. So that's just a marriage tip for the young single people. It's like, job first, then marriage. See how that worked? Oh, he should really have a wife. I'm going to give him a job. Scientific nomenclature. Okay, name all the animals. Now I get a wife. Free marriage tip. Okay, so he, he says, uh, finally, someone I can relate to. Then in verse 25, we concluded the text by saying, they come together, they are naked, and they are not ashamed. Again, we have to think about these implications. The, think of the implications of being naked beyond romance, beyond the marriage bed. They have something in their relationship that we lost. That in Christ, we can recover. They 
weren't hiding. They were fully transparent. They were totally secure. They were at ease. They weren't at fear of being exposed. They didn't need to manipulate or control how they were seen by the other person. They weren't fearful about what the other person was thinking about them. They didn't have a running commentary in their minds about their own acceptance. They were totally secure, totally loved, from a place of total security and identity. Their souls were free to love fully. That's what we had. That's what we were designed for. That's what we lost. And good news, church, that's what Jesus Christ is restoring. That's what the gospel is restoring. We want to be totally known and totally loved, but that's terrifying because we know our own faults. We know our own sins. So it's hard. You see, to be, for somebody to know us totally and then reject us once they get to know us is devastating. But for someone to really just kind of know us superficially and say, oh, I love you, is not fulfilling. But to be totally known with all your junk and all your sin and be totally loved in spite of it is absolutely invigorating. That's the at last. They see, my, they see me in my, the nakedness of my, all my flaws and they love me at last. This is what the gospel in Jesus Christ restores. Because what sin did was it brought shame and it brought covering. And what the gospel does is it removes shame and it removes our covering. If somebody that I don't know comes up to me and goes, Hey, Paul, you're so great. And they pat me on the back. Oh, I love you, man. You know, that's nice. But when Susan says, I love you, Paul, that's like the 12, 8-year-age single malt scotch going down. That's the, that's the warm, fuzzy stuff. That's the okay that's different because this person going i love you man doesn't really know me susan really knows me all of you kind of know me susan really knows me so when susan's like i love you because i know how unlovable i am and can be and am capable of being jesus christ was crucified naked they were naked and not ashamed. And ever since, we've been clothing ourselves because of our shame. Jesus Christ was crucified naked to remove all of our humiliation and shame. He did it because He loved you. And He knew your sin. And He loved you anyways. He knew your sin and your shortcomings and your faults. You and I are the nails in His hands. And He loved us anyways. The sinless Adam sleeps. And in the Hebrew, it's he sleeps the sleep of death. Christ, the second Adam, would sleep the sleep of death. God pierced Adam's side. And a Roman centurion pierced Christ's, Christ's side. From Adam's side, his bride came, Eve. She came from one of his ribs. From Christ's side, his bride came, the church. We came from the blood and the water. The blood for our, pure, uh, for our sanctification and the water for our purification. Adam then rose out of his sleep of death. In a garden. Christ, he rose out of his sleep of death in a garden. 
Adam rises out of a sleep of death in the garden and he's presented with his bride, the bride that his father gave him. Christ rises up out of the grave in a garden and he's, present, and he's presented with his bride. Mary is there, metaphorical, symbolic of all of us. Mary, the one who lived a dark and oppressed life, who Jesus liberated. She represents all of us. Adam was given his bride in a garden. Jesus was given his bride in a garden. Christ the second Adam rose from, from death just as Adam rose from that sleep of death. And then Adam cries at last when he's given his bride. Finally, he could express the love of God to the glory of God. And our souls cry out, at last, when we receive Christ's grace. Because where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. Where the first Adam made a miserable mess, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, is restoring all things. So that our souls can say, finally, I'm at rest. And now I can give and live in self-giving love because my soul is at rest in the one who created me and I can live to his glory. God designed us for relationships of self-giving love. Sin distorts those relationships with self-serving interest. But Jesus Christ and his perfect life, death, and resurrection is restoring and reshaping how we relate to relationships through self-giving sacrifice.